Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Oxygen Starved podcast, where we bring you your adventures, books, and conversations, your ABCs from 11,000 feet. I'm Stacy, And I'm Christopher. And with us, as always, is producer Doug. Hi, Doug. Thanks for being Hi, here. Guys. How's it going, Doug? Good. Awesome. So, Stacy, so, we're still at we're still at home. We're still at home, or remote, or whatever is the is the term people are using now. Y- yes, working remotely, I, I believe, is the the appropriate <laughs> phrase. <laughs> so, really quick quiz: What day of the week is it? It is by my standards, or by <laughs> the world standards, because the calendar says Friday, but in my house. <laughs> on Friday evenings is when we have some tequila. So it's tequila day in my tequila house. Tequila day in the Adler household. Yes. All right. That yeah. might that might encourage some groups forming and, and physical distancing violation in your driveway soon if we say that too much. Yeah, that that's true. <laughs> there might be a, like a, a six foot spaced line out in my door. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's something many people are feeling right now. Oh, definitely. I yeah, I, I think we're all getting a little punchy, a little mm-hmm. the novelty has worn off. Right. Exactly. Um, but you know, where everybody's making the best out of it and um, you know, we'll continue to persevere and it is the yep. best thing to keep yep. everybody safe and healthy right now. So Absolutely. Continue to do this and I'll continue to see your handsome face over the Zoom. And <laughs> We're doing a lot of Zooms. We're seeing a lot of our colleagues like bookshelves and wall decorations and yes. ceilings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, <laughs> interesting times that we live in. I'm sure there will be entire doctoral theses written about this, this whole oh, Zoom. Don't. On. Don't you think? Isn't it yes. strange? Yeah. yeah. So before well, we be- go, go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, before we got we before this all happened to us, you and I did get in one adventure, one more adventure, like out there in the world. Yeah. Um, before the governor shut us all down. We record our segments often weeks in advance. Mm-hmm. We should mention yeah. so. Um, I know yes. it feels like we've been under lockdown for eons now, but I think it's been about a month or so. Yeah, like, about a month. Yeah. 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 So we did. We got a, we got an adventure in. It was great. It was it was fun. It was a it was a nice. It was a little chilly afternoon, and mm-hmm. uh, Christopher and myself and my husband Joe, we we ventured out toward the Round Valley area um, of Mono County and listened to a lecture by Tim Taylor, who's Mm -hmm. with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife about he and he was telling us all about the mule deer that live pervasively in our county. And it was it was super interesting and super fun. So there are, you know, we learned in that in that lecture, the the mule deer that we were going to visit that day was in Round Valley, which is at the mm-hmm. southern end of Mono County, right. the northern end of Inyo County, and it's the wintering spot for that particular herd, right? Yep. But there and are a number of herds. Yeah, there are five herds in in Mono County. Round Valley, the Round Valley herd being uh, not only one of the larger of the five herds with about mm-hmm. just under three thousand deer. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also the furthest south. And then there's the Casa Diablo herd, the Mona Lake herd, and then the East Walker herd and the West Walker herd. So they make up the herds in Mono County. And most of those animals migrate between California and Nevada. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think the one thing they have in common is in the summer months, they all go into the Sierras, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they're all here, and it's approximately ten thousand animals that we're we're talking about that um, live here amongst the humans. 
who and they are not quarantined, so they're still out. <laughs> um, and and ro- and roaming roaming around. So um, and they're you know it's it's quite fun to see the the deer. You yeah. know I, you know it doesn't it never gets old, and they're just so cute. We even have a little family that lives right out right outside of our office. Mm-hmm. And in Mammoth, and we get to see them every day when they're around, which is quite fun. We kind of know where they come from now. They come from Round Valley. Round Valley, yeah. So the the event we should mention real quickly was sponsored by the Eastern Sierra Land Trust, which Mm -hmm. is an organization that works with landowners to secure land for the future that will stay undeveloped so that it can preserve these migration corridors that the deer rely on to get from their winter spots to their summer spots. Right. And speaking of those, one of the interesting facts that we learned is that they, the deer have the same routes. Right. That they follow year after year after year. And that keeps the babies from getting lost, which I think is really interesting. I think I think Tim Taylor said like a, a young deer just needs to do it once and then they it's right. implanted and they remember it forever. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. It was it was really really cool and um we also learned that deer can live to be up to 12 to 13 years old which is pretty which is surprising. Right. So it was surprising to me anyways. Right up there with um, right up there with trout. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> And just like trout, how we couldn't tell if if there was a 12 or 13 year old trout. I don't think we could tell if there was a 12 to 13 year old deer either. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) I don't think they age like we do. (laughs) (laughs) But we learned, you know, the sad thing is that we, we also, a big part of this lecture was talking about the mortality rates of, of the deer and how it's the motorists um driving up and down 395 that are the the people that are causing the most deaths of of these deer and they were talking about different ways that they're studying to try to mitigate that which i thought was rather fascinating the idea that they could build bridges Mm -hmm. and the deer get trained Mm-hmm. To go up and over 395 via a bridge rather than just, risk, yeah. you know, risking it. <laughs> right. You know, like the whole concept of wildlife crossings as our mm-hmm. roads get bigger and our roads get busier for everyone's mm-hmm. safety. I think it's interesting to contemplate these because every one of these deer uh, herds has to cross 395 at That's some right. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know about you, I I just commuting from work week in and week out on 395 every day, it's not uncommon to see a dead deer or the remains or, you know, a red spot in the, in the pavement of the highway. So we know this happens frequently. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's almost in the summer, it's almost more common to see the carcasses Mm -hmm. than to not see them. Right. They're so ubiquitous. They're just everywhere. And it's so sad. And, and it's, you know, it is, it's problematic for, for people like us that travel that corridor every single day. Right. um, Because, you're you have to be so on edge and looking right. out for the deer and i think that was my my little daughter i think those that that was her first full phrase that she learned to say as a a toddler was watch for deer when we have people <laughs> leaving our house that, that's what we always we all particularly in the evenings watch for deer because they right. they do have that tendency and it can be very dangerous yeah. for motorists and for, for deer, but they're really fun to watch. If you can, you know, be still enough that you can actually observe their behaviors there. It's, it's really a great um, part of our community having them around. It is. And I think, you know, as much fun as it is to watch them, I think they sometimes enjoy watching us because sometimes mm-hmm. they just stare right back, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, we, we should say that we went on this um, this lecture, this hike, mm-hmm. as it were, with the intention of seeing deer and we saw none. 
and so at the hike right and so afterwards we drove a little further down the road and we saw quite a number yeah of deer um over by pine creek and um yeah they were very they almost wanted to challenge you know look like they were challenging (laughs) you like when they'd stare (laughs) back at you like what do you think? Leave me alone. <laughs> what are you looking at? Stop looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was yeah. super, it, it was, was super fun. fun. And, you know, much appreciate the Eastern Sierra Land Trust for putting these uh, talks on and they're very mm-hmm. educational. There was also, I should mention that uh Tim Taylor, who was our our docent, if you will, our lecturer right. that day, um, he did a, he did a study on Highway 395 and the 203 Junction Wildlife mm-hmm. Crossing. So we'll put a link to that study in our show notes, so yeah. people can check it out and learn a little bit more about the deer migration around here. But it was it was great fun and. Christopher, it was your idea that we do that. So thanks for that great idea. It was so much fun. It was fun. We'll do it again. You'll come up with the next one when we can go outside again. Exactly. And and not (laughs) not have to be like six feet apart. (laughs) All right, listeners. Well, take a breath. Take a deep, deep breath because we all need to do that these days. And we will be right back. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this podcast. Welcome back, listeners. We are at the B section, the book section of our podcast. Yay! Yay! We always do a little bit of yay! Yay! <laughs> it's one of our favorite things to talk about. Yes. Books and reading. Because mm-hmm. often when you're chatting with a friend or even a stranger about what you're, what they're reading, a book they're reading is kind of a little window into their soul at that point in time, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and a great way to establish a, a commonality. Totally, totally. Yeah. And I was I was chatting with friends last week, you know, during the whole like self-isolation, stay at home mono thing. Um, you know, there are times when it's difficult to concentrate on reading a book. And then there are times where I can't read enough, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so it's been an interesting back and forth. I've been reading a lot of light, you know, what we would call palate cleansing fiction yes. lately. It's funny because I have two. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. It's you, like you need the escape a little you bit. Do. You you need the you need the kind of distraction, the trashiness, the you know, not another heavy story. Right. Yes. So um, we uh, wanted to talk about young adult literature, specifically an author who is big in young adult literature right now, and he kind of walks the line between light and heavy. Mm-hmm. genre and that is john green right yes yeah he's he's the master right now i i think <laughs> he is many of our listeners will know john green um, they've either read him or their kids have read him a number of his books have been made into to movies mm-hmm. um and he you know his books include abundance of catherine's paper towns looking for alaska um, I read The Fault in Our Stars, and you read his most recent book. Turtles All the Way Down. Turtles yes. All the Way Down. A couple of his have been made into movies. So again, he's kind of out there in the culture right now. He's also a very influential author, especially among librarians and educators and mm-hmm. booksellers. Yeah. Um, because as you said, Stace, he, he really came out in the mid-2000s. He's one of these new millennium mm-hmm. YA authors. Mm-hmm who helped push young adult literature to another level, another level of sophistication, another uh, level of realistic um, situations that he puts his characters in that, you know, you might not have seen handled the same way in previous generations of young adult books. Right. 
Um, and he often assumes that young adult readers can handle more controversial subject matter than adults assume that they can. Right. Um, the other thing, two other aspects of his books that I really like is that, um, again, not unlike many young adult authors, he celebrates the geek in all of us because we all <laughs> at that age, no matter what what we put out towards the world inside, we kind of think we're a little bit of a geek, right? But at that age, I'm still there. <laughs> <laughs> That's because you're still young. Um, and then, you know, the other theme is hopefulness. So as much yes. as he deals with some very difficult situations, there is a strain of hopefulness in, in his writing that helps make it, make it uh, something people can relate to. And, um, feel hopeful about. And I think yeah. that's something that we all kind of need in our reading. Um, so I will just say a little bit about the young adult literature landscape right now. So he came in in the mid 2000s, along with this generation of other authors like David Levithan and Rachel Kahn and Laurie Halls Anderson, who wrote Speak and Lately Shout. Um, Scott Westerfield wrote The Uglies. These are all authors who brought in more diverse characters and more diverse situations to their plot lines, right? And yeah. made, the, made the books a little bit more compelling and kind of opened the door for um, a, the next generation of authors that came out in the last decade. Um, mm -hmm. Rainbow Rowell, who wrote Eleanor and Park. Jason Reynolds, who is the current superstar of young adult fiction. His biggest book in my mind is Long Way Down. Tomi Adeyemi, who just a couple years ago came out with Children of Blood and Bone, and it's a huge bestseller. And then fans of Simon versus the Hopo Sapiens Agenda, mm -hmm. which was made into a movie called Love, Simon. It was a book written by Becky Albertelli. So all of these authors are very different, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of the intent. They helped, again, usher in this more diverse, interesting characters and sophisticated storylines that attracted a lot of adult readers. So there's right. a whole whole phenomenon is called young adult crossover in the publishing industry where adults are reading these young adult books because they're dealing with sophisticated and interesting stories. Right. Right. Well, and as a parent of, of that age of child, you, you know, you, at least for me, I was kind of, I want to know what my kids are reading. Exactly. You know, so it's when they're reading books of this, quality mm -hmm. um with you know such subject matters as we'll we'll get into in a little bit yeah uh, it makes it a much more enjoyable for for the adult <laughs> for like, me in this case like hey i like this book yeah well and then you have a whole you it gives you this whole like i said before this commonality this jumping off place for right. engage in conversation with your teenager with your young adult. Which is a huge opportunity, right? I mean, mm -hmm, I, I absolutely really didn't talk books with my parents when I was a teen. We all read, it was a house of readers. Um, but yeah. you know, what you're saying is that opportunity that I think many parents and teens need to have. And as librarians and educators, I know we encourage that as much as possible. Mm -hmm. We're not, we don't wanna be telling teens what they should be reading. Right. Um, and, you know, there's kind of a rule of thumb that young adults kind of can self-censor to where they are in life, but mm -hmm. they really should be chatting with their parents and discussing what they're reading. Right. At any point. Especially um, when you're dealing with some of these sophisticated topics. Yeah, that, exactly. that That John Green discusses. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing about the YA crossover market is it's also a great nostalgia read. So for any of you who are itching to, you know, re-experience your awkward teen years, some of these <laughs> books are great ways to do it. One of my favorite books out there uh, was co-written by David Levithan and Rachel Cohn. It's called Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Um, you know, back when we were teens, Stace, we made mixtapes and stuff like yeah. that. <laughs> now it's more sophisticated, it's playlists and what have you. Um, but these are authors who are pairing up to write books together, often alternating mm -hmm. the voices or alternating the chapters. And that's happened multiple times, um, which is another kind of interesting thing that young adult literature is doing. So with all of that context, um, why don't I jump into the book that I read? Go for it. Okay. It's the, so I chose The Fault in Our Stars. Mm -hmm. Again, John Green is the author. 
it came out in 2012 and it immediately hit the top of the New York Times bestseller list for its category. And the movie came out a couple years later. So I think a lot of you out there, again, will be familiar with the story. Um, the title comes from a quote from a Shakespeare play. Um, and it kind of alludes to how we as humans have little control over our fates or our lives, which is something I think probably resonates with many of us as we're working from home. And the quote, <laughs> it's, the quote itself is, Cassie is talking to Brutus in Julius Caesar. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. Meaning, you know, there's a, there are bigger things that play out there. We can only have so much influence, which is a theme throughout the book. So mm -hmm. the book itself, really quickly, <clears throat> it centers around Hazel, a teenage girl with all the teenageness of any girl in the, her mid-teens, 16, 17 years old, um, but she has terminal cancer. So difficult situation. It's acknowledged on page one. It's not a surprise. It's actually a core um, factor of who she is and the story itself. Um, she meets a boy named Augustus in a cancer kid support group. She calls them cancer kids with a capital C, capital K, because it's like almost a culture. If you're a young kid mm -hmm. who's grown up with cancer and spent most of your time in and out of hospitals, it's just the, that's the milieu in which you live, right? right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, she's a teenager. She goes to a support group kind of half-heartedly um, and she meets this, other teenager named Augustus who's recovering himself. They have a little romancy, neat, cute moment. Um, they <laughs> kind of start to fall in love. Um, she shares with him her obsession for a particular book written by this reclusive author. Um, her obsession with it is so well written about a, a girl in a similar situation that she's in, but that the author ended the book in a way she didn't agree with, which Stacey, Which I, I can totally relate to. <laughs> <laughs> How many times have you put down a book going, why did they end the book that way? A lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> so Too that, many to count. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're not alone. This is kind of the central theme of this, the central plot device of this book mm -hmm. is that she's obsessed with why did this book just end? And, and the author apparently just finishes the book um, without any wrapping up it just it actually right. doesn't even have an ending it just stops kind of like life does for certain yeah so augustus in a fit of chivalry donates to her his kind of make a wish style prize to secure her a trip to meet this author in amsterdam so she can confront him face to face um, that's the plot drive driver. Um, along the way cancer continues to dominate both of their lives um, mm -hmm. But, you know, they're teenagers, so, you know, she has the usual teenage angst with her best friend around boys and, and Augustus and her friend Isaac from the support group who loses his eyes um, to cancer has his usual teenage angst, which is around girls. So all of that is there. Um, I won't give away the ending, but I'm betting most of you know it anyway. Um, one thing that I will note here. This John Green, when he was in his early 20s, for a few months, he was a chaplain in a children's hospital. So he kind of knows about what he's writing, the characters at least. And he's quoted as saying, all of the people I've known who were sick, young or old, were still funny. It's important to note or remember that people who are sick and people who are dying aren't dead. They're still alive. And sometimes we forget that and we treat the sick and the dying so gingerly and so carefully, we often you know, what they want most is to be alive while they are alive. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them who are very sick are also very, very funny and often mm -hmm. in dark, dark ways, which comes out of in this, yeah. right? You know, Hazel and Augustus, um, they're, they're both very funny, but they're both dark as well. Hazel is self-deprecating. She's insightful. She's deeply, deeply human. Again, she's the central voice. Her parents are less fleshed out as you would expect from mm -hmm. a teen book but they are definitely painted with um, you know, humanity and through her eyes. Her love interest, Augustus, um, equally fleshed out, insightful, funny, imperfect. You know, he celebrates the geek in both of them. He doesn't write them as overly mawkish. Um, and he also seems to understand that as kids whose lives are dominated by cancer, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it is a matter of fact part of their life. And, yeah. you know, there are times where she just, you know, he talks about her walking across the room. Well, she always grabs her oxygen tank and walks across the room. And it's never presented more mawkish than that or right. any less. It's just a part of who she is. Um, and it's interesting to see how he has them compartmentalizing the serious things that they go through versus just like kind of like the day-to-day teenage stuff that they go right. through, which is fascinating. Um, I will say that the book was faulted by some when it first came out as kind of glorifying this trope of romantic teenage death, you know, kind of like Romeo and Juliet or what have you, this tragedy, and it might influence teens to, um, you know, commit suicide or stuff like that. Um, but John Green punched back really hard. Again, he mm-hmm. said, you know, um, I'm tired of adults telling teenagers that they aren't smart, that they can't read critically, and that they aren't thoughtful. In other words, they know what they're reading. Right. right? And I, I think that's one thing that I appreciate about his writing. And I've read several of his books because, like I mm-hmm. said, my children have read them. Um, and he treats his characters, his teenage characters, with respect. Yeah, And I appreciate that so, so much about his writing. He doesn't talk down to his readers. He respects his readers and he gives them credit for being intelligent and understanding um, difficult, being able to understand difficult situations. Yeah. And I think I wonder if that's one of the reasons that compels so many adults to cross over and read his books, um, Mm -hmm. because they are authentically voiced characters. They're not an adult imagining what a teen would be like. It's almost as if he's still a teenager himself inhabiting that that voice that's yeah absolutely and to that to that same end he doesn't make his adult characters even though you're absolutely right they're they're less fleshed out you know they're not the main characters of the story but yet he doesn't treat them in a disrespectful manner he they're they're caring sensitive adults you know who are also intelligent and have something to offer the young people yeah absolutely sometimes he may phrase them from through the eyes of the teenager Mm -hmm. so like if when those moments when hazel is kind of exacerbated by her parents you know that kind of comes through but you always as a reader understand where the parents are coming from right and and yeah and always understand that hazel or in you know in the book that I read that that character loves her parents and yeah, he appreciates totally. appreciates them and they're not totally. just afterthoughts. Yeah. So um, final thought on this is is this theme of you know teens reading sophisticated fiction. Another thing that he said was um, through story we can understand that others feel their own grief and joy and longing as intensely as we feel ours that's that empathy thing that mm-hmm. yeah is and it's these he says it he thinks it's just nice to be outside of yourself at times so that you can pay attention to the world outside of you which in the end is even more vast than the world inside of you right yeah and that's something you want every teenager to experience over and over and over again as they're becoming that adult Right. 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 Yeah, for sure. So in towards towards that end, the book that that I read is also very insightful mm-hmm. because it deals with in in I read as I said before, Turtles All the Way Down. And this book deals with a young female protagonist, um, Aza, mm-hmm. and she is dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder. And in this regard, John Green is really bringing self-knowledge um, to the story because he himself it has obsessive compulsive disorder. So wow. he really, uh, you know, he has talked in interviews about this being a very difficult book for him to write um, because he had to really go so deep within himself and his desire to share what it's really like to be obsessive compulsive. You can imagine that would be very difficult to put, put on the page, but turtles all the way down is a reference to a parable 
um, that is told about two thirds of the way through the the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the title comes from. And Aza is a high school junior. As I said, she has obsessive compulsive disorder. She has a best friend named Daisy and they have a, an acquaintance. Aza has an acquaintance named Davis whose billionaire father has disappeared. Right. And there is a hundred thousand uh, dollar reward put out if anybody has any clues and Aza and Daisy not being wealthy decide to try to get the $100,000. And in doing so, Aza reconnects with Davis and rekindles their friendship. Right. And um, uh, it's a very sweet friendship. They have a little bit of a romance, but because of her OCD, Aza can't really get beyond... The, the romancy aspect she they they share a kiss and she likes the kiss at first and then all of a sudden her OCD kicks in and she's imagining all the bacteria that is being <laughs> transferred into her body and what's that what is that doing and that that pretty much ends ends the kiss <laughs> So, um, so that's then, almost, almost COVID-19. Almost, <laughs> almost, yes, it's, this is, this is a sign of book for our times. <laughs> um, <laughs> later on in the story, Aza and, and Daisy get into a car crash. It causes Aza to be severely injured and be hospitalized. Um, drink, and, trying to drink hand sanitizer in the middle oh. of the night thinking this is going to get all the germs out of her body, which of course extends her hospitalization. Um, wow. And it, it, you know, a lot of information about um, obsessive compulsive disorder comes out particularly during this uh, segment of the book. Right. Um, at one point, John Green describes what Aza is going through almost on a step-by-step manner when she is having what what is called a tightening gyre or a spiral of thoughts. And the way that this passage is written, it is written like a spiral. You can feel yourself as a reader going through this spiral Mm -hmm and really gives you an understanding of what it must be like for somebody who is obsessive compulsive and when they have something triggered in them, what they feel. And how that just kind of takes control. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, if you imagine a spiral, if, you know, starts wide at the top and gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And as it gets tighter and tighter, all these other physical things start you know, kicking in with a tightening of your breathing and, you know, your lungs feeling tighter. And I, it was, it was difficult to read. I found myself getting very anxious, um, reading, reading that passage. And if you are an adult who has a child with obsessive compulsive disorder, or, you know, somebody, you know, somebody close to you with this, I can't recommend you reading this book enough because you will really understand what somebody with this disorder goes through and what, what they are dealing with. And, um, you know, it's, it, like you said about Hazel and cancer being just part of who she is, that's how it is in this book. You know, the mm-hmm. obsessive compulsive disorder is just part of Aza and who she is. And, um, you know, it's it's not the plot line. It doesn't drive the story by any means. It's just right. part of her, who she is as a character. <clears throat> and it he just does a great service to all people who suffer from, from this and um, in, in how he describes it. But, um, you know, and again, he, the adults in the story, he treats them respectfully. Aza lives with her mom. Her dad has passed away. Um, 
And, you know, her mom is a, is a caring individual. The therapist who she goes to is a caring, well-intentioned individual. You know, there's, they're, they're treated with, with a great deal of respect. And, you know, as I mentioned really quickly, they're searching for this, they're trying to earn this thousand dollar reward, but the a hundred thousand dollar reward, but the mystery is what has happened to Davis's father. Yeah. And so that, that is the central through line, you know, right. that kind of drives the, the plot forward, but it's by no means the focus of, yeah. of the story. It's really relational and, you know, how all these friends interact and he just, um, he just does such a masterful job of, of balancing all of the subplots. It's interesting because what you described, there's a, there's a similarity in structure with the fault in our stars where, you know, there's this underlying medical issue, human issue, if you will, Mm -hmm. that speaks to how they get through life and, and interact in their human relationships and how they develop as individuals underneath what, is kind of like the plot driver, which is like this quest, right? right? And yes. in my book, it was a quest to go find this author. And in your book, it's a quest to find out what happened to this disappeared individual dude, you know? So right. it's interesting. There's kind of like a similar theme or structure in these books. Absolutely. And I, I would venture to say that they're actually, that's characteristic in all of his books. And I, you know, I, before we had this conversation, I spoke to my older daughter who's read all of his books and she made the comment well in in turtles and in fault in our stars the the mystery wasn't the focus right she said i like his books where the mystery isn't the focus much better than in i think it was uh paper towns Mm -hmm. she said where the mystery was kind of more of the focus yeah that wasn't as successful in her eyes but yeah um, yeah, I think all of his books have some form of intrigue yeah. that that drives the characters along. But um, yeah, I th- he's he's a great author. I've enjoyed every book of his that I've read, and um, it's I can't wait to see what he does next. He also has a podcast, and he's involved in social lot. media and. Yeah, yeah, he's all over the place. Mm-hmm. He yeah. is good. I think we would both recommend our books, right? To yeah, not absolutely. just to teenagers, but to adults, especially parents of teenagers. Um, I think he was asked a question once, if you could handpick the ideal reader of your book, how would you describe them? And he said, thoughtful, intellectually curious, self-conscious 17-year-old, which describes everyone of any age. Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And 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 describes his care his main characters quite accurately. <laughs> so this is John Green. Um, you can find Turtles All the Way Down, which was Stacy's book, mm-hmm. or Fall from the Stars, which is my book, out in any of your libraries, your bookstores. Um, encourage you to read them, even go see the mm-hmm. movies that he's had. They're, they've been pretty well done. And talk to um, teens in your life about them. Yeah, absolutely. Take a deep breath, readers. We'll be right back. Oxygen, a colorless, odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved, suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast, a colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners, to the C section of our podcast, The Conversation of Oxygen Starred, where we uh, bring someone from the local area who contributes in a unique way and chat with them about how they got to Mono County or what they love about it and what they do and how they contribute and also what they're reading. So our guest today is Jeff McQuilkin, who is the executive director of the Mono Lake Committee. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for having me. So, um, Jeff, you've been an Eastern Sierra resident for at least a few decades now. (laughs) We were just (laughs) chatting. Are you native, or if not, what brought you to the area? 
Um, yeah, I grew up in Southern California, so uh, share that with many people who live here, but uh, I grew up in Pasadena, actually, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, lots of reasons to know Mono County and love the area, but I think I really learned about it because of the water connection to the city of Los Angeles and the aqueduct and the water diversions um, from Mono Lake, which um, when I was uh, growing up, young, when I was younger, were uh, quite large and causing the lake to of course, go down and, and really imperiling its ecology and its future survival. Um, so I'd heard about that issue, and that's kind of what motivated me to visit for the first time. Um, although my family uh, often like to come and go backpacking in the Sierra in the summer, mm. um, out of the Owens Valley, and, uh, and some, somewhat out of Mountain County too, Yosemite. Did you come up here to ski? We came up to ski a little bit. Yeah, yeah, mm. we. We were modest skiers, I guess. Like we went to Badger Pass. You know, that's not really uh, competing with Yosemite, uh, competing with Mammoth, right? Um, but we were, Mammoth, we were at uh, Mammoth a few times. I think Badger Pass is a good place to learn. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so is your background, your, your educational background, your pro professional background, is that in water and ecology? Or what, what draw you, drew you specifically to that, that subject? Yeah, well, one interesting connection uh, in how I learned about the Mono Lake issue is that uh, David Gaines and Sally Gaines you know, founded the Mono Lake Committee back in 1978 uh, as scientists when they really became aware, uh, along with a other group of other scientists, the, the ecological challenges at Mono Lake. And, uh, you know, the big challenge that they um, realized they had in terms of trying to change water policy was that no one seemed to really know what was going on. I mean, it was just an issue of getting the, the word out. And... Right. So they kind of formed this network of folks um, to share the story. And one of those was my fifth grade science teacher. So I actually learned about Mono Lake down in Pasadena when my fifth grade <laughs> science teacher gave the famous Mono Lake slideshow for school assembly. And that's awesome. And, uh, kind of, you know, at the, the, the uh, elementary level, the takeaway was like, well, yeah, water is good for a city. That makes sense. But why are they taking all of it? All of it doesn't sound so good. That doesn't seem like a balanced <clears throat> approach. <laughs> um, so I was interested uh, in it, but uh, you know, studied studied lots of things in college. I was a uh, history and science major, so I was looking mm -hmm. at environmental history and American right. history and how science uh, came to you know inform the environmental movement and really um, you know change a lot of what you hear from you know John Muir being uh, very poetic about you know how these wild places are. You know, evocative for our souls, which they still are, but you know that's a that's a that's a sort of different world than where most issues are now, which is very science based in terms of looking at you know impacts and trying to quantify or understand uh, ecosystems, and that, that was a big change in American history. So that was fun to look at, and the Mono Lake Committee was a great match for me because it's a very science based organization that was always focused on you know aware of the importance um, for people of Mono Lake, but focused on the science of what, what's really happening, including using that to find solutions to the water issue. So right now, what are the, what are the priorities of the Mono Lake Committee? Um, so the committee really works in four major areas, protection, restoration, education, and science. Um, and on the protection front, um, you know, we've always got the aqueduct to Los Angeles and there are always issues, even though we've you know, really won major uh, victories over the years with so many citizens and you know other Mono County residents and people from around the state and the country involved, um, even just managing the aqueduct uh, in compliance with the rules in place can be a, a, an issue that can lead to some dispute. Um, so, so that's a that's a core one. But there's a lot of other things. I mean, in, once you've kind of got a grip on the water issue, um, there's a lot of uh, ecosystem management, public lands management. Issues, you know, we've had the state park at Mono Lake, which is really an uh, important protection, be threatened with closure, you know, several times over the years. Uh, Forest Service <coughs> provides important protection programs and has, you know, lost a lot of funding. So we look at how we can help out with them as a partner and do things. And, and um, you know, that led to just to pick an example, like the effort recently to uh, do a controlled burn on the islands out in the middle of Mono Lake, which is a strange place to do a controlled burn but the purpose uh was because california gulls nest out there and it's um one of the uh, largest california gull nesting colonies in the world and this invasive 
um, weed uh, Bassia plant had uh, uh, abruptly um, introduced itself in the past few years and, and was uh, carpeting the ground and, and um, it was just occupying the places that they would nest. And so their population was going into decline. And so this controlled burn was a way to manage that. Um, but uh, with limited resources, you know, it was really a partnership effort so that we could do a lot of the the groundwork to set that up. And then of course, you know, doing a controlled burn is something the forest service is an expert at and could come in and, and do. So a lot of resource management questions okay. still, um, there's a lot of restoration that goes on at Mono Lake and on the tributary streams, um, still healing from the damage done by the excessive water diversion years when the streams were um, totally dry. Uh, and people love to visit Mono Lake. So we do a lot of education work and that can range from, uh, you know, a, an hour-long walk at South Tufa in the summer for folks who are visiting, maybe the first time, and explaining where's the Tufa Tower come from and what birds are we looking at and what's a little bit of the water history here. Uh, that's kind of one end, but we do weekend field seminars with scientists or people who really are interested in a topic in depth. Or um, And then we run this great outdoor education program with youth from Los Angeles to connect them with um, the source of their water up here. And so we're working with the LA Unified School District and with community groups in LA, um, often for uh, at-risk youth or you know, a large number of kids are not even <coughs> out of the city and come up and see snow for the first time here in Mono County uh, and uh, get to stay here close to Mono Lake for a week and, and do a really great program um, learning about a whole different world than, than urban LA. So a big range of education programs um, that are a lot of fun. And then we uh, lastly just always like to support science and make sure it's still happening because that's how we know whether Mono Lake's <laughs> doing well or has a problem um, and uh, we run a field station so we can provide housing for scientists and try to really get folks collaborating and talking and um, bring in scientists who we know are uh, expert on relevant topics like limnology or uh, hydrology and, and make sure Mono Lake issues are um, getting the attention they deserve. Yeah. Mono Lake seems to get a lot of visitors from all over the globe. I mean, for our listeners who are less familiar with the area, it's pretty much at the Eastern Gateway to Yosemite, right? Levining the town and Mono City there um, are close to the Tioga Pass, which leads over into Yosemite. So a lot of people seem to come over to visit Mono Lake as a destination. Um, is, is that a lot because of the work the Mono Lake Committee is doing to get this word out, um, you know, how far is your reach? I think, you know, over the, the decades, and the committee's been around for over 40 years now, um, uh, it is a large part of it. Um, when the committee was founded, you know, I was saying the challenge was people didn't really know about Mono Lake or know there was something worth protecting um, right. at the lake or what the problem was. Right, uh, and as that awareness grew, the interest in visiting grew, um, and it could be from photographers and bird watchers. But you know, Tufa Towers are really striking and unusual <laughs> things, and the landscape is big and wide open. And it's strange to have a salt lake in the middle of the high <laughs> desert here, and and you know, and there's gulls, seagulls, you know, California gulls flying around. So, so it, I think it's just sort of evocative to all kinds of folks, and we get a lot of international visitors, a lot of California visitors, a lot of folks from around the country um and uh so yeah as the as the visibility of the lake um has grown its popularity for visitation um so some of the major uh lake visitation sites like south tufa mm -hmm. many folks have probably been to you know those will see you know, more than a quarter million people a year wow. um, walking through there and mono county has done some visitation surveys and um lake's actually the the most common uh, destination of visitors uh, in the county. There are many things people are doing, of course, but Mono Lake uh, is almost on everyone's list. <laughs> Great, <laughs> you know, that, I love it. <laughs> that that South Tufa Reserve is amazing. Uh, we've mm -hmm. been a couple of times in the last year, um, and it is, you know, Stacy, you and I have talked about this before. Depending on the light and the time of day and mm -hmm. the weather and everything, going down there and being a, right at the lake and where the Tufa is visually. And, and just, it's stunning. Like the, the hairs are going up on the back of my neck right now, just thinking about mm -hmm. it yeah. um, because it's kind of otherworldly um, down there. How do you control and keep that so pristine when you have a quarter of a million visitors coming through in a short window of time? Yeah, well, that's the big challenge. And that's certainly at Mono Lake and I think throughout 
Mono County and the Eastern mm -hmm. Sierra, right? I mean, we mm -hmm. want people to come here. We want them to have a great time and we want to preserve the place we love and make sure the next person who comes to visit also enjoys it and does it fun, <laughs> uh, you, you know, and, and, but you need, uh, you need some infrastructure, you need some focus, you know, you need some working bathrooms, you need, right. uh, you know, place to park, that kind of thing. Um, so it's tough. The forest service and the state park are, you know, really important as the land managers, um, providing those facilities. But, um, we, we've always tried to play a role, both volunteering, um, by having people down there and leading mm -hmm. programs and things, but also kind of thinking about um, what's the balance. And, you know, sometimes you, you need to, you know, the size of the parking lot can be meaningful for how many right. people are down there at a time and are the people who are at the lakeshore able to take that photograph they want or is it so crowded mm -hmm. no one can take the photograph. Right. And mm -hmm. so right. thinking about that long-term planning and what kind of uh, facilities do you provide and things we, we like to be at part of that and be able to share, share ideas mm -hmm. and think about the, you know, how things go. And, um, the neat thing about Mono Lake is there's really a approach of focused recreation. So we have some developed sites, which is to say you can drive there, you can park, and there is a bathroom and there's informational mm -hmm. signs and you know fantastic place to learn about the lake. So like South Tufa or Old Marina just north of, um, of Lee Vining. Right. But then because those attract a lot of people, if you're really into it and you want to explore around, there's no limits on that. But, mm -hmm. yeah, you kind of have to have some curiosity and want to go to the next level. And <laughs> if you do that, you'll often find you're the only person out there wherever it is you've chosen to go. And yeah. that's an experience yeah. we want to preserve as well so people can experience that. Yeah, that Mono Basin really has a lot mm -hmm. of wide open space, doesn't it, Stace? Yeah, it is. And, you know, that's what you just said, Jeff, about getting, if you have that curiosity and that motivation to get, to go beyond the surface, it's true of so many places here in our county that it doesn't take very long before you to look around and see you're the only person in this, wherever you are. Um, yeah. And that's that's one of the... I think a, a nice feature of living here, particularly right now when we're supposed to be social distancing. <laughs> Not hard to social distance in some places here. But Jeff, you have you've got three kids and and a wife. And so what do you guys enjoy about living in Mono County when you're not attending to the Mono Lake Committee? Um, well, uh, all kinds of things that I'm sure uh, many listeners and you guys like. I'll, I'll say we, we like the schools a lot, so that's one thing. I mean, Thank you. Really just delighted to bring our <laughs> <laughs> county <laughs> raise our kids here, and and we have friends in the cities who say, "Oh, you're kind of out there in the middle of nowhere. Is that work?" And we go, "You know, do you, do you guys go to meetings and worry about class size at your school?" They go, "Oh yeah, of course, a big time." Like, well, you know. <laughs> you got dedicated teachers, if you got people who care running the schools, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, we've got some real advantages here. Uh, you know, the ability to get outside and do science and you mm -hmm. know, have, have the good um, companionship with your, you know, the community and the classes has been great. So, you know, we love to ski. Uh, I spent a lot of time in June Mountain, lots of June Mountain ski team participation among the kids. <laughs> um, uh, backpacking, you know, exploring around Mono Lake is good. We've, I, I've got um, a wide range, age range, so we've got um, yes. our oldest is in college and our youngest is in <laughs> kindergarten. Um, <laughs> in this uh, social distancing time, they're they're both doing Zoom classes at the same time during the weekdays, <laughs> which is kind of amazing, as well as the high schoolers. Um, and uh, so when the youngest was born, we hiked the John Muir Trail, all five of us. And that was, uh, that was an experience yeah. and a good, uh, good wow. bonding time. Yeah, yeah. When she was, she was one year old. So that was pretty <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Get her into it soon. Yeah. Well, exactly. we had to do it then or you have to wait, you know, eight years right. until, you know, mm. you can really walk reliably and carry, carry a little weight. So <laughs> good <laughs> point. we better do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. We should also say uh, the Mono Lake Committee operates uh, a uh, store, storefront in Levining, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we do. We, we have um, called the Information Center and Bookstore. So, you know, lots of people have lots of questions ranging from what's a Tufa Tower to how do I get to Yosemite? So um, we love <laughs> talking about all of that. I talk about the water politics and the water history and the aqueduct operation and things. And uh, 
but we've got a great little bookstore as well. Yeah. And um, not, it's just fortuitous, I guess, that we've survived the, the grand transformation of bookstores or the disappearance <laughs> of bookstores across the country. We have a lot of people come through who, um, you know, even even a two-day delivery from Amazon is not good enough because you're on vacation and you're traveling and you've got questions now and you need that field guide or right. you want to read yeah. up on or you, you've got a chance finally to, to read some some interesting fiction or some history. And uh, so people are, uh, we've got some, some eager shoppers and it's fun fun to have a nice collection. Well, it's a, it's a great little store. I mean, it's a great store. Like I go there often if I need a gift for somebody or, um, you know, just to pass time away. If I get to leave hiding early before a meeting, I always go in there and there's, they always have really unique things to, to browse, to look at, to buy, um, and a good book selection too. So we've been able to work with a lot of uh, local artists, uh, you know, Mono Basin, Mono County, uh, over in Yosemite and things. And that's fun too. So you'll mm -hmm. get some distinctive things yeah. that are really interesting. Yeah, For sure. So Jeff, we always ask our guests, what are you reading right now? Since reading is such a, a big part of our lives. For sure. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I, I got a couple of things. Um, uh, one, on the waterfront, uh, there's a great book by Mark Arax called The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. And um, it's, a, it's a big book, but it's just sort of, it's a, and he's really an investigative journalist, reporter, uh, and, um, but very beautifully written. And if you're interested in California water, if you're interested in the story behind, you know, where, why are there pomegranates, you know, across the Southern Central Valley? Um, you know, this is the book book to read. It's really, you know, quite, mm -hmm. a, quite an interesting one. And uh, he's, uh, I think it's been out for a year or so. He's been doing yep. some presentations around the state. And really neat. Um, and uh, also just with the uh, COVID-19 situation, uh, sort of looking back to a book that's been around for a while, but um, called The World Without Us. And it, it's this really interesting book by um, Alan Weissman that he sort of tries to imagine, you know, people just disappeared, you know, no, it doesn't have no particular reason, but just imagine, you know, so what would happen to cities and farms and infrastructure? And um, there have been some uh, newspaper articles out there now talking about how with everyone, you know, at home, um, obviously the people are here, but we're not out in all the places we were and there's, uh, uh, you know, wildlife roaming the, uh, the streets of New Jersey and, you know, <laughs> and, and Yosemite Valley, uh, you know, that haven't been seen forever and clear skies over parts yeah. of the world that have been polluted for <clears throat> decades. The residents have never seen blue sky between some of these, uh, you know, landmark sites. And uh, right. it's kind of fascinating to see how that compares a bit to um, what he was projecting. He interviewed a lot of scientists kind of about what would happen in these different regions. Um, yeah, so that book got this, really uh, good reviews when it came out. Um, so it's on my list to read as well. Um, do you mostly read nonfiction? I'd say it's mostly nonfiction. Yeah. 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 A little too much news, actually, I think <laughs> a little too much uh, <laughs> these days. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, mostly nonfiction world and some of the, you know, there's been some new science things mm -hmm. about droughts and mega droughts and things that are right. very relevant to Mono Lake and, Right. What does the future hold and how fast mm -hmm. will the lake rise to its long-term protected level and things like that? Right. So, um, well, it is interesting, you know, just on back on that theme, the, the kind of the history of California in the West is really centered around water, right? So yeah. you can't escape these, this, this story and this continual mm -hmm. evolution of how we interact with it, where it interacts with us, um, because it is amazing. There's a lot of precedents that were set uh, at Mono Lake during the protection effort, the public trust mm -hmm. direction, the fish and game codes. And so it's interesting that Mono Lake turns up in a lot of uh, uh, contexts, um, you know, water issues in Hawaii or, you know, hmm. where, wherever you might be, because uh, the precedents that matter right. legally and management-wise as, as much as the on-the-ground stuff does right here. That's amazing. Well, once again, Mono County is a, is a trendsetter. It is. For a small little county, we get we get it done, right? We're shaping the state, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and we're we're glad we think so. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, Jeff, so much for spending yeah. some time with us today. And we really appreciate it. It was this great having really fun. you. Thank you. We'll hope you'll come back and talk to us again when all this is over and we could see if there's been any impact on not having people around, if it's done anything to improve the situation or, you know, impact it, the situation at Mona Lake. That will be interesting. All right. We'll check back with you then. <laughs> Thanks so much. And thank you listeners for joining us for this episode of the Oxygen Starved podcast. Please remember to take a few minutes if you enjoyed the podcast to subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. We'd really appreciate that. It helps with the visibility of the podcast a great deal. You can check us out at our Instagram account at O2Starved and our Facebook page, Oxygen Starved Podcast. If you have a message to give us, please email us at oxygenstarvedpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much again for joining us. Be safe, stay healthy, have a great day. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. In Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License.